Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Well, guys, uh, we come to church to hear something different, right? I think of one uh, influencer who said, when I go to church, I'm told you are a sinner and you're deeply loved by the God of the universe. And, you know, no one says that stuff to me at Starbucks. So we're going to hear something a little different today. We're in the book of the Revelation these next few weeks. Um, Revelation is the last 20 pages of your Bible. So if you struggle to find Ezekiel or Amos, you'll really like this. Why are we fast forwarding? Well, because Revelation summarizes so much of the rest of the book because the last scene shows us so much about the main character and because the finish line tells us about our middle and about how to run well for the finish line. Revelation is kind of the grand finale of the whole book. Like any good ending, it repeats the best parts from before. The theme is replayed like times 20. Uh, everything's magnified and louder and shinier. The season finale of a TV show, you see guest appearances from all the characters who had left before. You recognize, oh, that's him, that's her. So we'll see some guest appearances from Elijah, from Mary, the biggest event of history, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is repeated extra loud, and it's all tied together and focuses in on the main character, Jesus. Everyone gathers around him for a standing ovation. There's thunderous applause, and with that final scene, we see what's next and we say, that is so amazing. It is so amazing. I do not quite understand everything that's going on. But that, that is worth living for. But the grand finale, it might be a little louder and grander than we are used to. My kids, they don't always love the grand finale at a fireworks show because it's, it's too much. So can we say together this morning, friends, that we're willing to keep reading if it gets a little too much, if it's maybe even a tad weird or strange for us? Are we willing to submit and open ourselves and say there's mystery and God is beyond all of our easy answers? The last chapter of the book, it was, it was whoa. Uh, but we're going to let God be God and do his thing. Revelation is special. It's unique, different. We will sit under this unique word and let it have special effect in our hearts and our lives. So let's pray this morning, and then we'll start in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you you say you don't call us servants, but you call us friends. And you have even decided to disclose to us the, your big final plans. Thank you for entrusting 
us with this kind of a vision and kind of mystery. We know that we are not worthy of it. It's way above our pay grade in some ways. But that you value us and you want to show us all things, to encourage us, to strengthen us. So Jesus, this morning we do pray that you would give us new revelation. Not to tout around as like, ooh, look at this cool thing I know. But to strengthen our hearts, to help us love you more, trust you more, Lord God. Would you show us, we are, we're learning things about the natural world all the time. Would you teach us things about the supernatural world today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 1. We'll get through most of the chapter today, but we will skip around a little bit. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. I, John, poor John, here's John sitting in prison on a Sunday morning. Rome sure won, huh? Poor guy. Except Rome didn't win. And Rome won't win. Rome has fallen, but John's vision remains. Rome could imprison the man, but not the message. And in that, John stands in a great line of prophets whose prison cells have been writing studios, whose prison rations have been food for a different kind of thought. I think of Gandhi, who formed his theories of resistance while uh, in jail. When you think of uh, Nelson Mandela, sentenced to life in prison, who formulated new leadership for South Africa in Siberian work camp, Solzhenitsyn maybe did his most important work, while John was worshiping on the Lord's Day. He has this spiritual vision from the heavenlies, to write down the things that he sees from heaven, things that are happening now and will happen in the future, and to send it to these seven churches. So we see from this some of the basic facts. It was written by John, an early leader in the church, a leader and preacher uh, who was imprisoned. Could be the same John who was the beloved disciple, follower of Jesus, um, uh, the disciple John, or it could be another John. We don't really know that much about this author other than his name, which was a common enough name at that time. 
It tells us who this was written to. The seven churches there, he, he knows these places. It's like, oh yeah, to St. Mary's, to Faith Community Church down the street. And then it tells us what kind of a vision it is. Um, it, it's, we call it, we've come to call it an apocalyptic piece of writing. So it's a vision with all these vision elements to it, but it's also a letter. The specific purpose and, and audience that you're writing to um, if I'm texting one of you, if I'm texting Evan or Kingston, I'll, I'll include certain details and reference patriots in the Minecraft, and uh, I won't bother to explain myself because no need. They know what I'm talking about, and I know that algebra is a little hard, so maybe it, it, it encourage them. It has these personal details that are, are referenced because it's a letter. He knows their backstory. It's also a biblical uh, piece of writing. So it uses all these biblical images and references, metaphors, words and phrases from the rest of Scripture. So it's a vision, but it's also a letter. And it's also the Bible. It's got all these different pieces to it. And when we hear the term apocalyptic vision, you might think like an end-of-the-world movie. And I like some of these end-of-the-world movies, great action flicks, but that is not what an apocalyptic piece of writing is. This was a common enough genre. It's not the only piece of apocalyptic writing that we have from this time. Apocalyptic writing is when the author ascends up to heaven so he can see both what's happening in heaven and what's happening down on earth. It's kind of like this. You ascend, whoo, you ascend to a higher realm and then you can see what's happening in heaven and down here on earth. You see both visions at the same time and you get this bird eye view, this 10,000 feet perspective on the earth. Get down from there before I get too dizzy. So, Let's unpack what John sees, map this out, what he sees happening in human history. If this is our human history, it's, you know, we got a lot to cover here. I didn't wind this up right the last time I, um, here we go. So the first thing he sees in human history, the big event is the cross of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was slain, this is the big historical event for him. Jesus' death changes everything. Then he also sees very clearly, right next door, uh, the destruction of the Jewish temple. Major event. Their place where they went to worship, to sacrifice, to have their, their sins covered and sacrificed, the destruction of that temple in the year 70. He sees many other images. The main one is uh, this beast. And this beast is an evil dictator uh, king who persecutes the church. So maybe that's Emperor Nero, Domitian. Uh, you could place it way over here. Uh, perhaps Paul Pot or uh, 
Right here we've got Kim Jong-un. He persecutes Christians. John sees from this 10,000-foot view, he sees a kingdom, Babylon. And Babylon is this kingdom that claims total allegiance from its citizens. Now, everyone who read this, this revelation in the early days, said, I know exactly what Babylon is. Babylon is Rome. They kill people who do not worship Caesar. But it also sounds a little bit maybe like Russia under Stalin or uh, Nazi Germany or, you know, come to think of it, there are even some nice countries that demand allegiance from their citizens and want them to be good patriots and citizens first and foremost. John sees the crowning triumph of history, the resurrection of Jesus, where God wins, where God defeats all his enemies by his resurrection, defeats sin, death, evil, and injustice. And he also sees the completion of creation in the marriage of heaven and earth together. I think I'm going to put that one like uh, over here, off the timeline maybe. So when we read Revelation, everyone wants to know when. When is this going to happen? Well, in our bird's eye view of heaven and earth, there are a number of different ways that people read the time of Revelation. Some folks read it as, it's called preterist or past tense, uh, and they say there's so many references to the Jesus event, to the destruction of the temple in the year 70, uh, a lot of references to things that happened in first century history. This book, it's already happened. It's been done done and dealt with, and that's true. But there's also a lot that is still yet to come. So we can say yes, but also no. Some people read this uh, as with a futurist reading, They say nothing in Revelation has happened yet because the world hasn't ended, duh. Um, And that that's true. There's a lot that points to God's future plan, to his will, to all of his purposes and plans being fulfilled in the end. But we also clearly are referencing lots of things that have already happened. Some folks are historicists. And they say the book goes from first century on to the end of all things. And they divide it up very clearly. So chapter 1 was Jesus' time. Chapter 2 is the first century on through, you know, chapter 18 would be the 1800s. And, um, and this is partly true because there's a broad range of history covered here. But dividing everything up so rigidly really just squishes and pushes and pulls and constrains human history in a way that gets a little hard to neatly fit into these boxes of human time. Then we also have another way of reading it called continuous fulfillment. And continuous fulfillment says that God's ultimate act of salvation has been done and it continues to reverberate and impact history until 
the cross and resurrection is all in all. So this, this way of looking at things like the beast or, or Babylon, it's kind of like if a father prophesies to his son and says, son, I really love you, and when you grow up, I'm going to get you a set of wheels. So the son's three, and he gives him a tricycle. Is that the fulfillment of the prophecy? Well, maybe to the kid it is, and the father's like, oh, that's so nice. But we're like, really? Is that it? The son turns 15, 16, gets a paper route. Dad gets him a really nice new bike. Kid goes off to college. Dad buys him his own car. Great, that is definitely the fulfillment of the prophecy, his own car. But then the father passes away, and with the inheritance money, the son buys a brand new Harley Davidson. Which one was the fulfillment of the prophecy? Well, maybe, you know, any of them or all of them were because it's about the character and plan of the father, not about the items. It's about the character and plan of the father, not about the, the, the items. They are many things that could fulfill parts of the end times prophecies of Revelation. It doesn't mean that they all have to or it's the only way possible. There have been many beasts and many Babylons, and they will be others until Jesus returns. Continuous fulfillment says that God saved, God is saving, and God will save. God's ultimate act of salvation has been done and continues to reverberate and impact until the cross and resurrection is all in all. So in terms of clear answers, I present this. You know, I feel like I've gotten my steps in today. Um, In terms of clear answers, though, I do think that everything that absolutely has to be completed for Jesus to return has been. Have there been wars? Yes. Has there been disease and dictators and distress? Yes, yes, and yes. Everything that must happen for Jesus to return, I think, has happened. And we can look forward to Jesus' returning with expectancy. Let's, uh, can I have an assistant? Right. (laughs) It doesn't have to be neat. Let's give it a, thanks. So John sees this vision of history and of heaven that we will dig into a lot in the next uh, seven weeks. But most of all, most of all, he sees a vision of Jesus. Revelation 1, um, verse 12 through 20. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. 
His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Friends, this is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want us to take a minute and just read uh, verses 13 through uh, 16 and just picture Jesus. You know, Revelation, it's a, it's a confusing book. Uh, and we cannot see how John saw, but with maybe a little bit of like imagination and picturing, we can get a little bit of the essence of the hope and love and power of who he saw. So if you want to maybe try to close your eyes, just picture and vision. Standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Just picture his presence. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. What does that look like in our mind's eye? And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. Jesus is described in a combination of Hebrew scripture images and metaphors. This is not a new revelation. It is the same one from the Garden of Eden and Moses and the prophets. He's the Son of Man, which is what Jesus called himself. He's wearing the robe and the sash. These are the garments of the high priests who were, their job was to mediate for humanity. These are biblical references, the book of Daniel. The lampstands is a menorah, which represents the Jewish people. And seven is the number of wholeness. So the seven churches in Asia represent the complete wholeness of all of the churches. This is to us And for us, and the light in the lampstands, the blinding light is the presence and love of God. 
Friends, let's not get Revelation terribly wrong. They are evil villains. There is an enemy, but Revelation is about Jesus. He's the main character. And even in this kind of terrifying, exalted, cosmic state, Jesus is there to offer hope, to raise us up, to explain things to us, to tell us uh, his, his secrets. And he love, love, loves the church. We do not need to be afraid of the times when we know him who controls the times. I think of my mom. My mom was born in, uh, I should know this, uh, 1945, correct? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, this is why he's a good uh, in-law. So she came of age in the 60s, the 70s, and uh, I remember her saying this when I was a teenager and um, talking about actually a, a bunch as, you know, we, us kids started, you know, having our own children. Her saying, you know, when your father and I, we were thinking about starting a family, getting pregnant, I just really wondered, is it right of me to have children? Should I bring a child into this world and have, have a baby in a world like this? You know, she had the uh, drills getting under the desk in case, you know, there's a nuclear bomb during the Cold War with, with Russia. Like, is it right for me to have a child in an age of, of nuclear weapons? And uh, I remember as an adolescent thinking, really, Mom? You considered not having me? Me? Because of something I don't even understand what happened back there in Russia? But I think this is very true, actually, of many of us. We all do something similar. I was talking to someone uh, about their job, and it's, it's a, a tougher job. Um, I probably would not enjoy it. And they said, you know... I never wanted to do this. What I wanted to do was I wanted to do anything in the healthcare field, just help people and be around people. And, but you have to take science classes, and I had no, no hope of passing science classes. I was uh, last week talking to another parent about um, their kid's school and just really unhappy with uh, some things around the school um, real concerns about the atmosphere and um, the environment, socially, especially for kids in this school, and um, just expressing some real concerns. And she said, you know, it's really bad. I even, I seriously considered volunteering at the school, and then I thought, nah, I probably wouldn't change anything. Our hope is not based on the circumstances and situations that we see around us. Our hope is not for easy times. There will be wars. I have no idea who's going to win this election. Our social media situation is indeed dire. Our hope is in a victorious Savior. A savior, not kind of like assistant to give us just a little extra nudge over the edge. Our hope is in a savior. Our hope is in Jesus who shows up with his face burning and a a sword. It's so great we can't quite understand it or describe it. 
Look at Jesus. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all of the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. As Christians, we do not wish for the best. We know that Jesus has secured the best for us. We know Jesus has secured our future for us. And our hope, our hope doesn't make us, you know, a little bit happier or a touch calmer in stressful situations. It totally changes, like, everything. There is a connection between hope and strength, between hope and perseverance, if you feel like there's no hope, well, you know, whatever, don't volunteer in schools, don't, you know. But when we know what our hope is, we can hold on with everything we've got. A story is told of uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu, who was a, a leader in the black church in South Africa during apartheid, where uh, white control over the country, and... Um, he had just gotten out of jail, been imprisoned for a while, and uh, went to give his first sermon after his release. And he stands up in, in this church in South Africa, and he gets up to speak, and soldiers start filing into the church. And they gather all, line up all along the edges of the church with big guns out. And can you imagine it, right? I mean, if one police enters here, we're like, what is going on? The atmosphere in the church, everyone just, they shrank. And Bishop Tutu starts speaking, and he says, Friends, you have already lost. There is no hope that you will win. Why don't you just look? Put your guns down right now because you have already lost. And when he said that, the atmosphere in the church, everyone just, they stood up, they started applauding, they started cheering, people started dancing. Uh, it said that uh, people started trying to dance with the soldiers. It changed everything. Why did he have hope? Because he knew Jesus. Because he knew Jesus was the beginning and the end. That he held the keys to death and to life. He knew that Jesus was dead and is now alive forevermore. Friends, this morning... We see plenty of mess in the world around us. And Revelation will lay out more things maybe that could go wrong in the future. Do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus who defeated death on the cross, rose again in victory over it all, whatever it is in the past, present, and future? Do we know Jesus. Because when we know Jesus, 
it changes everything. 